are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Well, tonight we are going to take up our journey through the Old Testament as we continue our Wednesday evening Bible studies. And I don't know about you, but I certainly have enjoyed these Wednesday evenings. It's been a refresher course for me. It's always, when you study the Bible, there's always something else to learn. And there's always many things to be reminded of. And so let's just very quickly remind ourselves of how we have arrived at the point we're at this evening. A pastor has been leading us through the Old Testament book by book. And he's been helping us remember what each book is about, what the subject is, what the theme is, by giving us a word that begins with the letter R. And so tonight, just very quickly, let's think about those. Genesis, the word was ruin. Uh, sin came into the world, and because of sin, everything was ruined. Uh, man began to commit sin on every hand, every kind of vile, wicked imaginable sin, murder, uh, adultery, incest, uh, betrayal, deceit, lies, everything you can imagine entered into the world because of sin. And the ultimate conclusion of the book of Genesis is that little four-word phrase found in the last verse, a coffin in Egypt. And that's exactly where sin leads us uh, because sin results in death. And, uh, and, and that's a tragic state that we come to at the end of the book of Genesis. But then we turn to the book of Exodus and the word was removal, to exit, to go out. And in Exodus, the people are brought out of bondage by the blood of the Lamb. And by the way, that's the only way you can be brought out of bondage. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Uh, By the way, it's interesting to note that in the book of Genesis, when ruin comes upon the scene and sin makes its entrance, there is no singing in the book of Genesis. Nobody ever sings a song. You never find a melody. You never find harmony. There's no singing in Genesis. In fact, there's no singing in the first part of Exodus. But when you come to Exodus chapter number 15, after they have been delivered by the blood of the Lamb, after they have come out of bondage and they've crossed over the Red Sea and they're on their way to the promised land, the Bible says, Exodus 15, 1, then sang Moses. You see, they didn't have anything to sing about before. But oh, I want to tell you, once you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you've been brought out of bondage, there's a new song in your heart. And boy, you can't hardly hold it on the inside. It's going to bubble out and you'll find yourself going around singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Well, there's Genesis and Exodus and then Leviticus. And the theme there is righteousness. Of course, the opening seven chapters of the book of Leviticus give us those five great offerings that Israel had to offer. And God is teaching us about the imputing of divine righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. Therefore, the only righteousness we have comes by way of the sacrifice. And that's all picturing the cross. And then 
the latter part of the book, he's going to teach us about implementing daily righteousness as being holy as he is holy as we follow his word. Then the book of Numbers, the roll book, listing those who are in the family, and I'm glad that my name's on the roll. The book of Deuteronomy, and the word there is remarks, as Moses rehearses the law of God again to the people, a new generation preparing to live in the promised land in victory. And by the way, every generation needs the, the word of God. Every generation needs a rehearsing of the law. And then there's Joshua. And the key word there was a region, conquering the land. And by the way, did you notice they had to conquer the land? They enjoyed living in victory. But in order to attain victory, they had to face conflict. You know, we want victory with no conflict. We want to live in victory, but we don't have to want to struggle or battle anything. Can I tell you, apart from a battle, there can be no victory. And so you say, preacher, tonight I'm struggling. Preacher, I'm in a battle. Praise the Lord, you're headed toward victory. You're on the right side. And so they conquered the region. Then, of course, judges, the rulers. And we talked about that cycle of sin and servitude and supplication and then salvation. And then, of course, the book of Ruth, the word Ruth, the story of grace. And then we look at Samuel, the books of Samuel, and the key word there was reign. And we found out that the books of Samuel really consolidate around three men. There is the remarkable man, Samuel. There is a rebellious man by the name of Saul. And then there's a righteous man, uh, David, the son of Jesse. And then we came last time to the books of Kings, and, and the key word there is royalty. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about who is setting upon the throne. And, and as we turn to the books of Kings, we find uh, uh, the story of the kingdom. Solomon comes to the throne. We see the kingdom at its pinnacle. And then, of course, we see the partitioning of the kingdom north and south as under Rehoboam and Jeroboam as the kingdom is divided. Then the progression of the kingdom as they gradually grow worse and worse and farther and farther from God. And then ultimately the perishing of the kingdom as they go into Babylonian captivity. And that brings us tonight to the books of Chronicles. Now the word for Chronicles that I, I want to give you, Pastor gave me liberty to use any word I wanted. And I, I went to the dictionary looking for big, long, difficult words that were hard to pronounce and had foreign meanings and I couldn't pronounce any of them, so I thought that wouldn't be a good idea. And so I thought I'll, I'll just simply stick with an easy word, a word that's very apropos for the book of Chronicles, and that is the word review. <coughs> now, a look back, a review is a look back on something that has already taken place. And that's really what the Chronicles are. The books of Chronicles are a review of the history of God's people. <coughs> In fact... You'll discover if you read through First and Second Chronicles, God will give you the history from creation to captivity. God will begin with Adam, the first word in First Chronicles, chapter number one, Adam. The very first man, God will take you all the way until the children of Israel go into Babylonian captivity. It really covers a span of about 3,500 years are covered in Chronicles. And so tonight, we're going to try to focus our attention on First Chronicles, but I think it's very important for us to get a, the background and the setting of both books because really they're a set. They go together, and apart from both of them, you can't understand. You must have both of them uh, put together in order to understand them. <clears throat> so I want to begin uh, by considering, first of all, 
an overview, an overview of the books of Chronicles. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> we often think that the books of Chronicles are merely a repetition of the books of Kings. But can I say that's not true? It's not true at all that they're just a mere repetition of the books of Kings. Now, they do contain much similar information. A lot of information that is much like the Kings uh, is given to us in the books of Kings. But there are some great differences. Now, maybe if you're taking notes, I want you to jot these differences down. While the books of Kings were written before the captivity, the Chronicles were written after the captivity. Kings were written amidst the hustle and bustle, uh, the activity. Uh, they are a regular, uh, daily record of what is happening in the moment. There is the dust and the busyness and, and the turmoil and the chaos, and it's just what is happening right now. Chronicles is written after the captivity. It's a reflection. It's a look back on what happened in the past. It's a very carefully selected review of certain information. Well, the books of Kings were written while looking around at what's going on. The books of Chronicles were written while looking back at what had happened in the past. Uh, the books of Kings are written from a political perspective. By the way, you'll find that they're always focused on who's on the throne. That is a political perspective. The books of Chronicles are written from a priestly perspective. The focus of Chronicles is always centered on the temple. And by the way, too many times we get our eyes focused on who's on the throne and we forget about what's going on at the temple. And if we don't keep our eyes off of this worldly throne and get them focused on this earthly temple where God is working, where God is moving, we're going to wind up being in trouble. Uh, the focus is on the temple. And really you'll find after the division of the kingdom, while in the books of Kings, he will talk about the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, then the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, back and forth it will go because there is a throne in the northern kingdom and there is a throne in the southern kingdom. But in the books of Chronicles, after, thank you brother, after the division of the kingdom, there's almost no mention of the northern kingdom. Because there was no temple in the northern kingdom. But oh, there was a temple in the southern kingdom. And God begins to bring up and begins to talk about what's happening there in that temple. In the temple, you'll find that it is the focus of both of these books of Chronicles. It was conceived in the mind of David. We learn about how it was constructed under the direction of Solomon. We learn about how it was contaminated by some kings and cleansed by other kings. And, and finally we read about how it was consumed by the fires that wiped up Jerusalem as the Babylonians came in and took God's people captive. So it's quite interesting that the focus is on the temple. You see the books of Kings give the record. They tell us what happened. While the books of Chronicles give us the reason, they explain to us why it happened. And can I tell you, it's important to know what happened, but it's almost more important to know why it happened. And that's what Chronicles does for us. You see, the books of Chronicles were, uh, most scholars would tell us they were put together by Ezra, the scribe, 
in preparation for the people who were returning from captivity back to the promised land at the end of their 70-year captivity in Babylon. And so uh, the, the writer really, and, and by the way, it's a record of Israel from A to Z. Uh, the first name is Adam. He begins to introduce us to Adam in chapter 1, verse number 1. And the last person of real focus is the last king of Israel's throne, a man by the name of Zedekiah. He was the very last one. And so really the books of Chronicles cover it from A to Z, from Adam to Zedekiah. All of Israel's history, God sets out for us in the books of Chronicles. You see, they're First of all, he wanted them to know some principles from the past. He wanted them to know what had happened, but more importantly, why it happened. Here's what he's saying. You're going back into the land. God has granted you mercy. God has been gracious unto you. You now have another opportunity to rebuild your temple. Don't mess it up again. Don't do what they did in the past that brought them to this place. You have suffered. You have sorrowed. You have wept. You have shed tears. You've experienced heartache. You've been alienated. You've been in captivity. This is the result of what they did. Learn from the past. Can I say to you, we ought to glean some principles from the past. If we look at a, a trend that comes along and we can see a pattern in the past that it led to apostasy and error, we ought to just say, I'm going to stay away from it because it didn't work then and it won't work now. There's important lessons to be learned from the past and those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. And so the writer wants them to understand some principles from the past. He wants to give them a promise for the future. You see, it looks hopeless. What was once a great nation and a great kingdom under Solomon, ruling over much of that Middle Eastern area, uh, people coming from near and far uh, to bring uh, gifts and give adulation to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Now that kingdom, because of sin and unrighteousness, has been decimated. They've spent 70 years in captivity. And it seems like there's just a very feeble remnant who have returned. Is there any hope? Oh yeah, there's hope. Because while the throne of David may have disappeared, the line of David still continues on. And through that line of David, one day the throne will be restored. Can I say to you tonight, there is still hope. It may look like things are dark. It may look like you're on the losing side. It may look like everything's been turned upside down. But I've got news for you. Everything's going to be all right because the line still goes on. And one of these days, the trumpet's going to sound. And then in a little while later, the king is going to descend. And he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign with a rod of iron for a thousand years. Everything's going to be all right. There's a promise for the future. Not only principles from the past, there's a promise for the future. Can I say to you, the writer wants to remind them about the presence the present. He wants them to know that God is still with you. This way, in chapters 1 through 10, we read about the predecessors to the temple. Uh, these are the people who came before the temple uh, came upon the scene. Uh, there are notable names that are listed in chapters 1 through 8. He gives us in chapter 1 names from human history. In chapters 2 through 8, he gives us names from Hebrew history. 
Then in chapters 9 and 10, there are some national notes. He's going to talk to us about the returning remnant. In fact, that's really what chapter 9 is. He's going to give us a summary of the people who come back from captivity back to uh, this uh, once great nation, this very small, feeble remnant. He's going to tell us about this crowd that come back. And so we have the returning remnant. And then he's going to start off by reminding us uh, about the rebellious ruler. How did this all start? It all started with this man by the name of Saul who decided that he was going to go his own way and do his own thing. Can I tell you that's how destruction always starts? It's when we decide to go our own way and do our own thing. So chapters 1 through 10, he deals with the predecessors to the temple. And in chapters 11 through 29, he's going to talk about the preparations for the temple. Uh, He's going to describe for us in chapters 11 through 22 the preparations for the structure itself. We'll find how David conquers the city where the temple is going to be built. How he carries the ark back to that city. How the choir is organized. How uh, he has a concern to build this temple of God. How he captures sacrifice. And there before God, the judgment hand of God is stayed. All that's preparations for the structure. And then he makes preparations for the service in chapters 23 through 29. I find it interesting. I wish we had time to deal with it in depth, but there are assignments. He gives assignments for menial, ministerial, musical, military, municipal, mental, managerial, and monetary responsibilities. Takes care of everything. David sets it all in order. By the way, there's a job for the priest and the porters. There's work for the Levites and the laymen. There's something for the singers and the soldiers, the counselors and the counters, the sovereign and the subjects. Everybody has a place to be involved in the work of God. Oh, can I say tonight, there's room for you. There's a place for you. There's a task that you can be involved in. You say, well, I'm not called to preach. Well, not everybody can preach. You say, well, I I can't do this or I can't do that. Oh, don't focus on what you can't do. Focus on what you can do and find a can-do place in the work of God and get busy for His honor and His glory. Well, there's an overview. There's an outline. Now let me give you an outtake. I know some of you are are wondering if I'm ever going to get back to my text. Well, I'm here. It's an interesting text, is it not? Quite fascinating. It's really, I think, filled with far more than we see. You see, the books of Chronicles set before us several things. In Chronicles, we find fragmented registers. We find a list of names, but they're not complete. They seem somewhat disjointed to us as we read them. They don't make a lot of sense. You see, the problem is they're they're in some way incomplete because really the purpose of the list of names is to lead us to the name that is above every name. But it's not found in Chronicles. In fact, you go through the entire book of 1 and 2 Chronicles and with all the names, you never find the name Joshua. That's the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus. It's not found. I don't know about you, but that troubles me. I was thrilled tonight when I came and everybody started singing about Jesus. 
There's just something about that name. But see, there's fragmented registers. It's incomplete. There's flawed rulers. I mean, there, there are some good kings and there are a lot of bad kings, but the problem is there's no perfect king. Oh, we're still looking for the perfect king. He hasn't showed up yet. There's failed revivals in Chronicles. Two of the greatest revivals in Old Testament history are written in the books of Chronicles. There's a great revival under a man by the name of Hezekiah, a king, and he's, he's assisted, he's aided by the prophet Isaiah. There's another great revival under a man by the name of Josiah, a king. He's assisted by the prophet Jeremiah. But neither one of those great revivals outlasted the very man who instituted them. When Hezekiah died, the revival died. When Josiah died, the revival disappeared. Failed revivals. They're really, they're books. I told you the focus is on the temple. They're books of formal religion. You see, it's mere ritual without a relationship. The narrative of Chronicles paints for us an overcast sky that grows darker every moment with the storm clouds of impending judgment. All but here and there, we catch a gleam of sunlight shining through the clouds. Notice our text verse. First of all, we're told about the problem. Adam. The sinning man. It's where it all started. Adam was created. We know the story. We know how that Adam had a choice and he made the wrong choice. He chose to disobey God, to go his own way. And, and then we know the consequences. We talked about it earlier, ruin. It wasn't but just a few pages, uh, uh, just a few lines in the, on, on the pages of Scripture until... Cain's firstborn son killed his secondborn son. His firstborn son, Cain, put under a curse. Looks like all hope is gone. See, the sinning man always brings judgment. But then, the second name is Sheth. We know him in Genesis as Seth. Turn over to Genesis chapter 4. Oh, it's exciting. The more you read the Bible, the more you study the Bible, the more you find it's all really just one big book. It's all connected together. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 25, And Adam knew his wife again. She bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said, uh, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. Oh, if, if verse number one tells us about the, or, or the first name, if the first name tells us about the problem, Adam, the sinning man, the second name tells us about the provision, Seth. He's a substitute man. Do you know that's exactly what his name means? It means substituted or appointed. That's what she said. She said, for God hath appointed me another 
instead. Can I say to you, it was of utmost importance that another be provided. You see, otherwise God's promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 16 could have never been fulfilled. It was absolutely essential that another be provided because without that, there was no way that God's pardon could be furnished. By the way, there would be no way God's people could be freed. But oh, I'm glad that there was a substitute sent from God on high. Oh, can I tell you, I can identify with Adam for I was the sinning man. I'd been created in the image of God, given the freedom to make my own choices, and foolishly I chose wrong, and I went against God. Because of my sin, I brought ruin into my life. I was under condemnation, headed for a place called hell, and deservedly so. But God looked down from heaven, saw my plight, and he appointed another, a substitute to take my place. And on Calvary, God's only begotten Son came and offered Himself as the one sacrifice for sin forever, that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Oh, can I tell you, the Jews, they do an interesting thing. They don't like the, because they don't have a New Testament. They don't believe in the New Testament. They just have the Old Testament. And they don't like the way the Old Testament ends because you know how the Old Testament ends, don't you? The last two words of Malachi are a curse. And they don't like that. And by the way, that's the end result of Genesis fully played out is just a curse. And they don't like that. They don't like that ending. And so what they do is they move Malachi forward and they take the books of Chronicles and move them to the back of the Old Testament so they get away from the curse being the end. Well, I told you about this book being a book of of fractured, uh, 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 fragmented registers. Not all the names complete. Because why? Because they're looking for that name which is above every name. And when you put Chronicles at the end, guess what happens when you turn the last page? You find a new register taken up that will complete the story. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The son of David, who was the son of Abraham. And they don't even understand what they're doing. And in their effort to get away from the curse of the Old Testament, they bring it right up and they have Jesus finish up because the, the angel said to Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Oh, there's the problem, the sinning man. There's the provision, the substitute man. But over there in 1 Chronicles chapter number 1, we have a third man by the name of Enosh. Here sets before us the possibility. If Adam is the sinning man and Seth is the substitute man, Enosh, I call him the spiritual man. Look back at Genesis chapter 4 in verse number 26. Remember in verse number 25, Seth is born. God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Verse number 26, and to Seth... To him also was there born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, the name Enos or Enosh means frailty or weakness. 
And the provision of a substitute man brought forth an awareness of man's frailty and weakness and caused man to call upon the name of the Lord. Can I tell you, that's exactly what happened in your life and my life. We sinned. But when we learned about the substitute man and what a perfect man he was, we began to realize how far short we had fallen. And what did we do? We turned from our own self-righteousness and called upon the Lord and asked him to be our Savior. Now, I don't want to finish right there. I've got one more thought I want to give you. But I didn't feel like I could go through all the names in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. So I'm going to skip over some. In fact, I'm going to skip all the way to chapter number 12. We have the problem, the sinning man, the provision, the substitute man, the possibility, the spiritual man. But I want to show you the prospect. You come to chapter 12 of 1 Chronicles and you have one of these instances where God lists the tribes of Israel. In, in chapter number 12, verse number 24, the children of Judah. Verse 25, the children of Simeon. Verse 26, the children of Levi. Verse 29, the children of Benjamin. Verse 30, the children of Ephraim. Verse 31, the children of Manasseh. Verse 32, the children of Issachar. Verse 33, the children of Zebulun. Verse 34, the children of, uh, and of Naphtali. Uh, verse 35, of the Danites. Verse 36, of Asher. Verse 37, the Reubenites and the Gadites. It's one of these, you know, there's some 19 different times in the Old Testament that God will list the tribes of Israel. They often differ one from another. You read through and you find there, there's... There's differences. Sometimes there will be listed a list that will not include Levi. But instead it will mention Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, making the number 12. Sometimes Levi is listed and instead of Manasseh and Ephraim being separated, they're just called the children of Joseph. There are different combinations. There are, there are many variations of how they're put together. But there's one consistency. It's always 12 in number. Every occasion, there's always 12 in the total. With one exception. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Did you notice? There's more than 12. Notice it with me. Verse 24, the children of Judah, that's one. Verse 25, the children of Simeon, that's two. Verse 26, the children of Levi, that's three. Verse 29, the children of Benjamin, that's four. Verse 30, the children of Ephraim, that's five. 31, half tribe of Manasseh, that's six. Uh, children of Issachar, 32, that's seven. Zebulun, verse 33, that's eight. Naphtali, nine, verse 34. Verse 35, of the Danites, what's that, 10? Verse 36, of Asher, that's 11. Verse 37, the Reubenites and the Gadites, 12 and 13. Well, why in the world is there 13 in one place and 12 everywhere else? I just never believe that something happens by happenstance. I believe every word of God is written for a reason. So why are there 12 plus 1 here? Why has everybody showed up on this occasion? Well, notice what was the reason. What was the occasion? 
Look at verse number 38. All these men of war that could keep rank came with a perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one heart to make David king. The occasion was to make David king. Here's the prospect. Things look black today. It's not always justice that's done. But see, this is not the end of the story. Because on this day when they came to crown a king, everybody showed up. There was not one tribe that was missing. And I'll tell you, there's coming a day when every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every tribe on earth will one day gather and crown Him King of kings and Lord of lords. I wonder if He comes tonight. Are you ready to be? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.